Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We have Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? You guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging. Um, today, uh, we are having a special guest on, but first, don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, if you're going to leave us a one-star review, we always request that you roast us. Uh, that's the least you can do. Make it good. Yeah, make it good. Make it worth <laughs> it. Like, if you're going to troll me, troll me well. Um, and then, of course, don't forget to check out Black Sheep Theology Network, the new network we started. Go to check it out at Black Sheep Theology on YouTube or bstheology.com com which is never gonna get old oh yeah and somebody made us pillows on it which is super cool so um yes, thank you now uh i don't want to get too uh too caught up in all the normal banter because we're actually today doing an interview and we haven't done one of these in a while yeah this is great <laughs> so um a couple weeks ago i was able to and i was actually privileged to join the talk about doubts team at a little get together they had uh nearby my house about 30 40 minutes away actually in Kalamazoo, where you are. Uh, yep, where I hang out all Where time. you work. So uh, I was able to reach out to uh, Dr. Jonathan McGlatchey, and he let me, um, he was friendly enough to let me come on down with the rest of the team. Got to meet David Palman finally, uh, our friend who has been on the channel many times. Uh, but uh, not, then I also got to join the team at Do Talk About Doubts, which has been super fun. Awesome. So um, anyway, with that being said, no further ado. Uh, today we have none other than the man, the myth, and the legend, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. So thank you for uh, coming on the show today and being willing to talk with us because, I mean, we're kind of a rambunctious bunch. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's going to bring up the intellectual level way higher than what we're used to. So this is going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, look, man, I worked a long day at work and I am just, I'm jazzed to finally be talking to somebody than watching paint dry. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, so anyway, with that being said, um, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy, you've recently started a new apologetics ministry. And that, uh, that is actually, I think, going to kind of take a the church by storm in many ways. I think it's a very yeah. useful ministry, a very helpful ministry. And, um, but for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and um, a little bit of your background? Absolutely. So professionally, I'm a professor of biology at Sattler College, which is a Christian school in Boston, Massachusetts. I did my PhD in biology at Newcastle University in Northeast England. And uh, I've been living with my wife for the last three years in Boston, um, working at this uh, Christian college, Sattler College. And I am um, also currently pursuing a master's program at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Biblical Studies. I'm, and I'm very, I've, I, have a long, I, have a, I have a long-standing interest in apologetics and alternative religious systems. And uh, as you mentioned, I, I uh, founded in December of last year, Talk About Doubts, Com, where we basically try to offer private mentoring to Christians who are wrestling with doubts in regards to the veracity of the Christian faith. And uh, so basically the way it works is someone will come on the website, talkaboutdoubts.com, and they will fill out a, and submit a form uh, that we distribute to uh, one of our scholars who has expertise specific to that particular question. And then that scholar will get in touch with that individual and set up a private meeting to talk about their doubts with them in confidence. So that's essentially my background. 
All right, great. So now we're now you're you're teaching biology at a Christian college. Um, are you what, were you raised in a Christian household? Then what what was your background uh, in religious studies? Sure. So I I grew up in a Christian home. My father is an elder in the church I, I grew up in. So I, I became a Christian uh, in 1996 uh, when I was pro around seven years old, and I. Um, uh, yeah, I've been a Christian since then. Uh, when I went to university in 2007, I began to interact for the first time with people of different religious traditions. I had friends who are Muslims. I had a good friend who was a Jehovah's Witness. I had a close friend who was a Taoist. Uh, and I also interacted with a lot of uh, agnostics and atheists. And so I became very interested in the question of how can we um, develop a robust religious epistemology that helps us to discern objectively which religions, if any, are in fact true versus uh, those that are false. And uh, so I, I became a very staunch uh, advocate of evidentialism, which is uh, essentially the idea that for contingent propositions, propositions that could be false or true, uh, the best way of approaching uh, the question of whether those propositions are true is to uh, investigate the available evidence uh, and uh, evidentialism is uh, essentially, in my, in my view, it's the, it's the natural consequence of consistent avoidance of circular reasoning, uh, at least mm -hmm. to uh, evidentialism. So I became a, a staunch advocate of that, and ultimately it's uh, led me to increasing confidence uh, in the veracity of the gospel because it not only uh, should, not only do we need evidence to uh, rationally justify our beliefs, but Christianity actually is well justified by evidence. And so that's why I'm a Christian today. All right. Well, um, so, I mean, you're raised in a Christian household. You went to school. Now, were you always uh, interested in science then? Was that was always kind of like your your shtick where you started off really first involved in that, but because of your exposure at university and whatnot, that that is what got you interested in apologetics? Is that my understanding? Yeah, I, I studied uh, science at, at university. I uh, was often bewildered and baffled as I studied the complexity and design and features of living organisms, how anyone could go through a four-year university program in the natural sciences and come at an atheist at the other end, because the evidence from the natural sciences, in particular my own discipline, the life sciences, uh, seems to me to be quite compelling for the truth of theism, uh, especially the information content of the cell and the irreducible complex nanomachinery that governs the show in, in biology, uh, it, that these sorts of features of life are not particularly surprising on the supposition that a mind was involved in the origins and development of life on Earth that are wildly surprising on the falsehood of that hypothesis. And that, that design intuition is incredibly strong in my judgment. And uh, and then when you combine that with the evidence from the physical sciences also uh, seems to tend to confirm theism, I think you have uh, an essentially conclusive case uh, that there is a God who created the universe and fashioned life. Right. So, yeah, that's actually brings me to my next question. So obviously, uh, as a Christian, you're a theist. So you believe that uh, there is a God outside of our creation, so to speak, like outside time, space and matter, if you take it classically. Um, and so you basically uh, would come to the conclusion that due to just the apparent design of everything, that there had to be a mind involved, as you had mentioned. So what would you say are some of the biggest things within your particular field that red flagged that for you, which that you find surprising that people would not see a uh, mind involved? 
Yeah, so information content in the cell is, is a big one. So along the spine of the DNA molecule, or what biologists call the sugar phosphate backbone of the DNA molecule, are these chemical subunits that we represent with the alphabetic characters A, C, T, and G that uh, are functionally specific. Uh, and in the case of um, the code of DNA, one of the major functions that the, that information content is, is playing is to specify the information needed to make proteins. Uh, so DNA is uh, undergoes what's called transcription, which is basically copying the DNA into an intermediary molecule known as messenger RNA. And then that is taken outside the nucleus to uh, a two-part chemical factory known as a ribosome. And at the ribosome, that messenger RNA transcript is translated into um, a, uh, a sequence of amino acids, which form the building blocks of proteins. And the sequential arrangement of those amino acids by virtue of the uh, properties of the of the side chains on those amino acids will determine how a protein will collapse or fold into a three-dimensional structure and, uh, and so when you find that when you find language convention systems like the genetic code in the cell uh, when we find um, information rich systems information processing storage and retrieval apparatus when you find irreducible complex machinery where you need multiple interacting well-matched components that need to work together in unison to achieve some higher level purpose or objective these sorts of systems are wildly surprising on the falsity of the design hypothesis but are not particularly surprising if indeed a mind was involved and so you have a, a top heavy likelihood ratio if you will um, which means that the these uh, lines of evidence tend to favor the design hypothesis which of course lends credence to a theistic worldview Makes sense. Um, I mean, that's kind of always been my thing. Like I, we were saying before we went live, which was, I, I am not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination. So when I read something like Dr. Stephen Meyer, I'm just blown away just by, I mean, I know he's got to be dumbing it down for me too. Like that's the thing is like, I'm reading his book. I'm like, this is probably like the simplest way he could put these complexities. I honestly don't know how anyone has ever been able to walk away from that going. Yeah, no, no, definitely happened by accident. Yeah. I think even like with, you talked about we're being we see creation essentially in this razor's edge of possibility right if it was anywhere to the left or anywhere to the right life couldn't exist the way our bio biology works the way our 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 bodies interact with nature and how they're fed and we you know even just like oxygen and how the whole system is is creating oxygen and then creating co2 and it's all just working off each other i think it's just such an amazing thing and i and i think you would argue right that it's essentially the opposite of the the what christians are accused a lot of is the god of the gaps argument where it's actually we're using more information that just says this is a designer not well, we don't know what happened so we just assume god and that's just that's essentially a, a an intellectually inferior argument to to try to convince anyone of right absolutely it's not an argument from ignorance it's a positive inference to the best explanation not based on what we don't know but the cause and effect structure of the world but rather what we do know namely the information content is habitually associated with conscious deliberation and so when we find information content in the cell um that observation is more probable if we understand that a mind is involved than if we don't. And so it tends to favor the design hypothesis. And what's it particularly compelling about the case for theism is that it spans multiple disciplines that all point convergently in the direction of theism. So for instance, you mentioned uh, the fine tuning. Uh, one book I recommend uh, in relation to uh, fine tuning is Michael Denton's books. Uh, he actually has several 
One of those is called The Wonder of Water, which uh, is a, an absolutely phenomenal text on some of the design features of water, something that we take so for granted, but it, um, it has multiple, you know, actually a number of very peculiar properties which conspire together to make life possible. For example, uh, because, of the, the, because of hydrogen bonding, water is unique among, uh, among molecules in that when it, uh, when it freezes, it actually expands. Rather, and so uh, it, solid water or ice is actually less dense than its liquid form, which actually allows it to float on the surface of water. Um, un unlike most other uh, compounds, which sink when they freeze. Um, and so if, if, if ice were to sink to the bottom of the ocean, then the oceans would freeze from the bottom up and much of the earth would be permanently encased in ice. Uh, <laughs> furthermore, water, by virtue of its own intrinsic properties, is able to, tra to transport itself to the land where it's required. Um, otherwise, you know, the land would be a, a barren wasteland, uh, a desert. Uh, in fact, um, water is uh, is uniquely able to exist at, at solid, liquid, and gaseous forms at the ambient temperatures that we find on the Earth's surface, so that it, uh, it so that you can have a water cycle. Water evaporates into the Earth's atmosphere, and then it, it comes down as rain. Uh, and water didn't always that property, but nonetheless, it's conducive. To our existence and when you and that's just the peak of the iceberg but when you start to look at all of these different factors that conspire together to make life possible uh not just life as we know it but really any form of life um then it, it, the the case for design really becomes uh overwhelming wow i actually never knew that about water that's actually fascinating that was fascinating something to look into what was the name of the book again uh, the Wonder of Water. If you if you want a good overview of um, all of Denton's arguments, uh, he has a good summary bit where he summarizes a whole bunch of them, uh, which he just published recently called The Miracle of Man. So highly hmm. recommend that piece of work as well. All right. Yeah. Make it, making a note of that. And the audience, I hope, definitely checks that out too. Um, now, uh, there's a couple of things that we had mentioned, and uh, I kind of wanted to spiderweb and hit a few of them. Um, so now... You recently, because you're, you're a biologist and therefore you argue from design from biology, which I think like you and I would agree that it's very apparent that there is a design, a designer involved. But you recently also had um, actually and you've debated him before, but you recently debated uh, the cosmic skeptic, the famed uh, cosmic skeptic on YouTube, uh, Alex O'Connor. Uh, and I was just wondering, uh, did you think that your arguments from design went pretty well in that debate? What were your thoughts on that entire debate? Absolutely. I, I don't think that Alex uh, put a dent in my positive arguments for design or for, for the resurrection, etc. Um, Alex is a very amicable guy. I, I really appreciate him very much. Uh, he's one of the more erudite, thoughtful uh, atheists, uh, public intellectuals. So I very much appreciated the opportunity to engage with him. That was the second time that we've done a debate. Um, he majored in his presentation on the argument from evil and the problem of divine hiddenness. I majored on the argument from um, biological design and the argument for Jesus' resurrection. Because obviously if Christianity is true, then God exists. And so evidence bears directly on Christianity also bears on theism as well. And the topic of the debate was uh, theism or atheism, which best explains reality. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought that the arguments fared well, and I, I didn't think that uh, any of my arguments that I presented were undermined by uh, anything that, that Alex said in that debate. What did you guys think? 
I mean, I thought the same thing. Um, honestly, I find, um, but th this is coming from someone who doesn't necessarily find the problem of evil. I, I find it to be something that uh, Christians need to get good at addressing, but I don't necessarily find it a compelling case against theism because there's a lot of different explanations for it. Um, and divine hiddenness, I, I, it's one of those things where I think it has a stronger case for it in my mind. Perhaps I'm just backwards compared to most people, but divine hiddenness, I still don't think that either one of those uh, really disprove or put a strong dent in a, a strong apologetic for the faith. There's reasons that can be even thought of off the top of your head why the problem of evil might exist or uh, divine hiddenness might exist. Um, now, before we um, go on much further, so problem of evil is for the, uh, those who do not know who might be listening would be just the overall suffering and pain or uh, moral evil or even natural evils that people experience every single day. So these would be uh, the case for atheism would be that if God is real, then God most likely would not create a world with so much suffering. Um, and then divine hiddenness is essentially the almost exactly what it says. Why can't we see God, talk to God, and, and things like that? Why does he seem so hidden? Um, so now, as far as those two issues were concerned, because I also want to talk to you about non-resistant non-believers. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> um, want to talk about that. Uh, the other thing is, though, is what, what are your uh, main theodicies, if we can use that term, for divine hiddenness, do you think, and problem of evil? What do you think are the, so the best cases to respond to those from atheists? Well, let's start with the problem of evil. So I, I do think that the problem of evil constitutes some evidence against theism. I, I, the way that I define evidence, by the way, is that which makes a proposition more likely than it was previously, uh, or changes the probability of a proposition being true. Um, the way that I conceive of evidence as a, as a Bayesian is uh, in terms of a likelihood ratio. The probability uh, on the numerator, you have the probability of that evidence existing given the hypothesis being true. And on the denominator, you have the probability of that evidence existing given the falsehood of that hypothesis. And so I, I would argue that the problem of evil constitutes some evidence that tends to disconfirm theism. But I think that oftentimes people can have a tendency to overestimate the potency of the problem of evil in disconfirming theism. And there's a number of reasons for that. For one thing, um, there's the problem of um, uh, of reduced returns by multiplying examples. Uh, and what I mean by that is, suppose that we encounter the first instance of suffering or evil in the world. And let's suppose that God has a morally sufficient justification however unexpected, for permitting that single instance of evil and suffering in the world. If that's the case, he may, may well have a similar morally sufficient justification for similar instances of evil and suffering in the world. And so it doesn't follow that the second instance of suffering or the third instance of suffering that we discover carries the same evidential value as the first. And so there's that depreciating returns um, with each successive example that's added to your cumulative case. And um, so you can't just keep multiplying examples indefinitely and expect the case to continue to grow in strength. Whereas, by contrast, when we look at the case for theism more broadly, and Christianity in particular, the evidence is not only extensive, but it's also varied in kind, spanning multiple disciplines. And so when you're comparing these two competing cumulative cases, one with lots of evidences of the same thing, or lots of examples of the same thing, 
and the other with more varied evidences. I would be inclined to favor the case with more varied evidences spanning uh, a range of different disciplines uh, that convergently point in a, 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 a common direction. Um, another issue is what I like to call the problem of evidential entanglement, which is uh, to say that evil and suffering by their very nature assume as a precondition that you already have conscious subjective experience. You cannot have suffering, you cannot have evil unless you have conscious objective experience. <laughs> uh, but conscious objective experience, as Richard Swinburne and others have argued convincingly, are much more probable on the supposition of theism than they are on the falsity thereof. And so suffering, the problems of suffering and evil by its very nature uh, presupposes that you have in place uh, certain preconditions that have been traditionally used as points of leverage in arguments in support of theism. And so suffering and evil are um, highly surprising, whether you're a theist or an atheist. And of course, these are two mutually exhaustive propositions. Uh, now, of course, one might say, as, as people like Paul Draper do, that let's assume that we, that we already have consciousness and grant that consciousness is evidence that tends to confirm theism. Given that, then suffering and evil are evidence against theism. And I agree with that. I think it does constitute some evidence against theism given the assumption of consciousness. Uh, but it does emphasize and highlight and underscore the fact that, uh, that consciousness is something which is a tremendous piece of evidence for theism because it, theism uh, understands that, uh, that everything essentially is derivative from a, from a mind. Uh, that uh, you have a consciousness, uh, you have a mind first that brings all, mat all material entities and beings into existence. And so it's not particularly surprising on theism that this, uh, this mind that we call God would want to create other minds. In fact, uh, on classical theism, it's, it's not surprising if God chooses to bring into existence a moral choice arena where people can interact with each other and mold and shape their character in morally significant ways. Uh, that, that is not at all surprising on theism. No, it doesn't have to be very highly predicted on theism. It just has to be not particularly surprising on theism. Uh, it just has to be more uh, uh, less improbable on theism than it is on the falsehood of theism. And I think that's certainly the case with consciousness, particularly when you consider all of the necessary preconditions that are necessary for consciousness to emerge in the universe, including you need a, a universe governed by physical laws such as gravity, not just any old universe, but a universe that's finely tuned to allow life to exist. Uh, so you've got things like the cosmological constant um, and the, the initial low entropy conditions of our universe, the ratio of the strong weak nuclear force, and, properties of, of water and, and a, whole, a whole range of different things that have to be very precisely tuned and balanced for life really of any form and, and, and in particular complex life to exist in our universe. And, uh, and then not only do you need a finely tuned universe, but you need the origins of life because a finely tuned universe is a necessary but non-sufficient condition for life to emerge. Uh, and uh, the origins of life is also an enigma, I think, for naturalism. Uh, and then you need the origins of, of molecular machines, the origins of multicellularity, the origins of complex animal body plans, including developmental pathways, the origins of, um, of, um, 
complex brains and, and, and organs and tissues and so forth. And uh, eventually you might get uh, consciousness. Um, but so as you can see, there's, there's a very strongly top heavy likelihood ratio that favors theism over non-theism. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I actually find one of the parts that you say actually very compelling. It doesn't have to be um, necessarily a point that's hard, really like intensely in favor of the proposition of theism. It just has to be not surprising. And I thought that was a really good way to put that because not everything in theism needs to be like a, a big, like neon sign screaming. It's just be like, yeah, this actually is what we right. would expect, or at least isn't surprising if exactly. theism were true. And, and a good analogy that my colleague, Dr. Timothy McGrew, likes to give is imagine that you are hiking in a forest and you're far away from civilization and roads and so forth, and you come across a cabin in the woods and it looks to be, it looks as though it's run down, it doesn't look like it's inhabited, um, there, and you decide to go and inspect to find out whether there might be anyone around. And so you crack open the door of this cabin and lo and behold, on the table, you find a, a, a mug of Earl Grey tea with a tea bag sitting in this cup. Uh, and the, the tea is still steeping. It's not at room temperature. Now, would you have predicted on the hypothesis that the cabin is inhabited that you would find a cup of specifically Earl Grey tea still steeping inside the cabin. Well, no, not particularly, but it's got to be far better predicted on that hypothesis than on the falsehood of that hypothesis. And so even if it's unlikely that you'd find that on the hypothesis that the cabin is inhabited, it's still more likely on that hypothesis than it is on the falsity thereof, that the cabin's not not inhabited. Uh, and so it tends to confirm overwhelmingly, in fact, confirm the inhabitation hypothesis there. That's a great point. I'm actually going to steal that analogy from here on out is that better than the ferrari in the woods one that you like to use yeah that is way better than the ferrari in the woods one i always tell about the a ferrari in the woods and how did it get there and what anyway <laughs> well i think uh, that, that kind of gets to some of the 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 non-resistant atheist idea right now i was kind of thinking about that as you're talking is is when someone says they're non-resistant but when they're they're given just even the compelling argument for just life in general and we have no explanation how all these things in the cell could occur at the same time much less how did it figure out how to replicate and do it again and then how do we have just life teeming everywhere um do you think are, are they actually being non-resistant in your perspective or are they or are they going well i just don't think anything else is compelling because they feel like every argument for god just means that they haven't figured out what the real answer is and that's why they're not convinced yeah i mean I, I do find it interesting that a lot of the people that make the divine hiddenness argument uh in relation to christianity you know why doesn't uh, god make it more obvious that uh, christianity is true and that jesus rose from the dead and so forth why do we have to go digging and do so much research i find it interesting that such that such people often are not convinced of theism which seems to me to be so abundantly obvious it's pressed against their noses every day uh, i mean if the evidence for christianity were as obvious as the case for theism then why why should we think that you would accept that case given that you're not already convinced of theism which is just absolutely overwhelming uh, 
essentially beyond question. And you don't need to go and get a PhD in astrophysics or molecular biology to see that. I think Paul got it right in Romans 1.20 that, um, that, that God's nature and, and attributes are clearly perceived through what has been made so that men are anapologetus, without an apologetic, without an excuse. Uh, and uh, I think Paul, the apostle, would have been would have felt extremely vindicated by what we now understand about the complexity in engineering prowess at the cellular level and what we now understand about uh, the, uh, the the design of chemistry and physics and so forth um, and of course the psalmist in psalm 19 verse 1 also speaks of he says the heavens declare the glory of god the skies proclaim the work of his hands uh, and i think that that is completely right uh, and i think that if theism is obvious which i think it is then it renders the it renders that non-obvious that there's nothing to the Christian claim, which should I think uh, compel one to at least investigate the claims of the gospel, uh, almost to the same point that it would compel one to do so. If one are very nearly persuaded of its truth, and I, I'm convinced that when one undertakes said study of the evidences pertaining to the gospel, that one will, in the long run, if one is trying to be as objective as possible with the data come to find Christianity to be true and well-supported. Um, and so I, I, I don't necessarily deny, in fact, I, I don't deny that there are non-resistant non-believers. But I, what I am very skeptical of is whether there are no, long-term non-resistant non-believers. That is to say, mm -hmm. one can be a non-resistant non-believer at time T. And because I believe in the goodness of God, I trust that um, either that person will cease being a non-resistant non-believer and become a resistant non-believer, or they will, in fact, become convinced of Christianity's truth because the evidence, when investigated objectively, uh, is very, very compelling for the truth of Christ's resurrection and messianic and divine identity. Do you think, like, for uh, someone who says they're non-resistant, uh, non-believer, do you think it's compelling when they see very resistant non-believers become believers. You'd, you'd think that someone who's so ardently against theism in general and then seeing someone then completely shift like we see all the time. We've personally seen it several times just doing this podcast. Don't, do you think that's a compelling evidence? At least someone else was given what they felt was enough evidence to not go from just non-resistant, unbelieving to believing, but actually against God and then being being a true believer. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that one should be compelled to change one's mind on a view just because other people have done so. I, I think that one has to be convinced in one's own mind in the same way that you know, I'm not convinced to give up Christianity just because there are other people that have. Uh, so I, I don't think I, I would uh, follow that argument myself. Uh, but um, does that make sense? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, we're regularly the challenge the status quo guys in the church. <laughs> I mean, I don't really care what other people believe. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah. All right. So now, because uh, that was one of the things I actually thought was really interesting uh, in your debate with uh, Alex O'Connor, which was that uh, when you were talking about that, either if you're a non-resistant non-believer, either you will become a resistant non-believer or you'll become a believer. I was like, whoo, that's a bold claim. But I actually didn't disagree. I just thought it was a, a unique thing to bring up. Now, when uh, someone like Alex O'Connor or whatever uh, and other people, when they hear all these arguments, because I've seen um, a large, uh, like just absolute 
almost gallons, if we can use the term, of arguments dumped on somebody before of all the evidence. And then I'll hear, still hear them go, well, I'm not convinced, and but I'm non-resistant. If someone could prove it to me, like that's something like Matt Dillahunty will, will use regularly, <laughs> right? Like, oh, I'm just not convinced. Oh, I'm just not convinced. Um, and then they say, well, I'm not resistant. Do you, am I cynical for believing that some of these people who are saying they're non-resistant non-believers are actually resistant? What do you, what, do you think? Right. Uh, Matt, Matt Delahunty is certainly not a good example of a non-resistant. Um, <laughs> for sure. I purposely went to the, I purposely went to the extreme on that. <laughs> right. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, Matt Delahunty, if you ask him what will change his mind, he'll say, I don't know. I mean, I, I can give I can give hypothetical evidences that could, in principle, change my mind about Christianity. I, I find it to be very disingenuous when one says there's nothing that they can even think of that could change their mind. Uh, Richard Dawkins and, and Peter Bogosian and others have said, and Peter Atkins actually in his debate with me uh, a couple of years ago, have said that there's essentially nothing that could change their minds. Uh, which is is quite shocking. I actually gave a couple of quotations, if I recall, in the debate with Alex Connor to that effect. Um, so yeah, there's there's certainly uh, there are certainly examples of resistant non-believers, and in their cases, it's not particularly surprising that God doesn't give them more evidence because it's not upheld in, as as virtuous in Scripture to believe in God. God's not sitting in heaven desperate to be believed in, right? Um, <laughs> He's, uh, what, what is upheld as virtuous in scripture is pursuit of relationship with God. And so, and furthermore, we learn in scripture that, uh, that, one, that one is judged in the hereafter in accord with the amount of light that they've been given. So to whom um, much is entrusted, much will be required of that individual. Um, for example, in uh, Matthew 11, Jesus condemns the unrepentant cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and says if the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Sidon and Mora, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for them than it will be for you. In other words, you've had more light and yet you've rejected it, and so the judgment is going to be even greater for you. And and so if, if God were to give more evidence to people whose hearts are hardened and are going to resist relationship with him anyway, then what's he done? He's made them more culpable and therefore great, subject to greater condemnation and greater judgment. And so you could even see it as an act of divine mercy in those cases for God to withhold from them greater evidence that would render them more culpable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, now to shift the discussion a little bit, one, <laughs> I, I can't... Uh, uh, I can't, I don't think, talk to you or the McGrews or anyone without at least bringing up uh, pre uh, apologetic methodologies, right? Because, um, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you came at, uh, in your debates, you come from an evidential standpoint. You mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation. Now, um, I actually got this. I'm going to grab this real quick because everyone should order a copy. Uh, this Calvinism, a biblical and theological critique just came out. David Palman and a bunch of us uh, pre-ordered this and they all came in the mail. It's beautiful and it's wonderful and I can't <laughs> wait to dig in. But one of the things that, uh, not all Calvinists, but a large uh, a chunk that there's this, a certain um, 
apologetic method called presuppositional apologetics that has actually kind of taken the apologetic world uh, largely by storm in various areas. There's actually a large presupp group in the Christian apologetic sphere. Um, can you help define presuppositionalism for us, how it compares to your view, and why you think it may or may not be detrimental or beneficial? Absolutely. So, as I said before, I'm an evidentialist, and evidentialism I would define as the view that for contingent propositions, that is propositions that could be true or false, uh, the, the best and really the only rational way to investigate those claims is to look at the available evidence. And uh, presuppositionalism, uh, by contrast, argues that unless you start with the conclusion that Christianity is true, you don't have a basis for rationality and logic itself. And there's a number of really significant problems with presuppositionalist methodology. Um, for one thing, so a very common charge against presuppositionalists, a very reasonable charge against them, is that they are engaging in circular reasoning. They're starting with the conclusion and then they're uh, just going out to find data and trying to make the data fit their preferred conclusion. Um, and they are wedded and committed to that conclusion come what may. And this is a significant problem uh, because when your conclusion is hidden in your premises, that is the definition of a circular argument. And when you press a presuppositionalist on their circular reasoning, the typical move that they make is not to say, oh, no, no, you misunderstood. This is not circular reasoning. Rather, they defend the virtues of circular reasoning. In fact, <laughs> they they um, tell us that uh, there's that there's some form of circular, some forms of circular reasoning are in fact not advice but are virtuous. So they would draw a distinction, I think it's a mistaken distinction, but this is the one they draw, between vicious circular reasoning and virtuous circular reasoning. And so they would argue that all of us have to begin somewhere. Um, how do, for example, uh, take the, the rules of inference in, in deductive logic. How do we justify those rules of inference without utilizing those rules of inference? And so we have to start somewhere. There has to be some level of self-referential appeal and so since you have to start somewhere, well, why not just start with the Bible? Um, <laughs> um, why, you might as well just start with your preferred conclusions. And one, what, a, a mistake that presuppositionalists make in putting forward that rejoinder is to commit another fallacy. They've already committed one fallacy, so why not go ahead and commit another, which is um, equivocation. And equivocation is basically where the meaning of your terms changes midway through the argument. And in this case, they equivocate between two sorts of presuppositions. There are presuppositions involving content and presuppositions involving uh, first principles or analytically true statements. So for to, to see this point, consider the statement that all bachelors are unmarried. Okay, so how do we go about investigating this hypothesis? So all bachelors are unmarried. Do we have to go and start going around with the clipboard from door to door hunting down all bachelors to find out if they're married or not. Well, no, we just need to analyze the constituent terms. To be a bachelor means to be unmarried. And so it's analytically true, or definitionally true, if you will, that all bachelors are unmarried. And statements like A is not non-A and two plus two equals four are true in that same sense. Two plus two equals four is true by virtue of what we mean by the constituent terms, two plus equals and four. 
this statement that A is not non-A is true by virtue of what we mean by A and what we mean by non-A. To be A means not to be non-A, right? Um, now, um, when it comes to a statement like Jesus rose from the dead or God has revealed himself in the person of Christ uh, or through the Jewish and Christian scriptures, those sorts of claims are more akin to a statement like all bachelors are unhappy. Well, that could be true, but it also could be false. And we can't just analyze the constituent terms to find out if that's true or not. We actually have to go and start interviewing bachelors to find out if they're happy or not. And we'd never arrive at 100% certitude in the affirmative because we might have missed a bachelor somewhere. And so uh, um, it's it, so I think it's important not to equivocate between those two sorts of presuppositions. I, I don't believe that there's any form of circular reasoning which is rationally justifiable. Uh, these are, um, we, we start with those uh, propositions which are analytically true, and I would argue that epistemology is uh, an a priori discipline. The uh, conclusions of epistemology are, um, uh, or the, the theory of epistemology are uh, true by definition, essentially. And uh, so that's one problem with presuppositionalism. Another one is that presuppositionalists are never clear on exactly which core set of Christian propositions are a necessary precondition for rationality and logic itself? I mean, if we were to start taking away certain doctrines like the virgin birth or, um, or the Calvinist doctrines of grace or the, um, or, or, I don't know, the, or take the book of Micah out of the canon or what have you. I mean, at what point do we cease being able to do logic? I mean, <laughs> or I mean, another related problem is what I call the problem of progressive revelation. And imagine you were a first century Jew living at the time the New Testament is being written, and a Christian comes up to you, suppose that you're a trifo, just a martyr comes up to preach to you the gospel, and you ask him, okay, why should I believe Jesus is the Messiah? How do I know he fulfilled the prophecies? How do I don't know he rose from the dead? I mean, would you be convinced if this Christian apologist were to say to you, well, actually, you just have to presuppose this. In fact, it's a necessary precondition for logic and rationality itself. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> <This> is... <laughs> new information. Um, so that's, that's another problem. Um, and another problem is that presuppositionalists commit another equivocation fallacy, which is to equivocate between ontology and epistemology. So mm. it's very common for presuppositionalists to present the transcendental argument, uh, and they argue that theism, and then they try to smuggle in Christianity somehow, is, is a necessary precondition for logic and reason and mathematical truths and so forth. And what they really mean is that God is ontologically necessary for these things, when what they ought to have shown is that God is epistemologically necessary. So to see this, consider um, the fact that oxygen is necessary for me to communicate right now. But uh, So it's ontologically necessary for communication. But it's not epistemologically necessary for communication. Even though it's ontologically necessary, I don't need to know that I'm using oxygen in order to communicate with you. Uh, and so likewise, I don't need to know that God is um, ontologically necessary in order for me to use reason and logic and so forth. Uh, and so, yes, it's absolutely true that God is ontologically necessary for reason. In fact, if God didn't exist, you couldn't reason. You also couldn't eat strawberries and you couldn't run the church <laughs> podcast because we wouldn't exist. There would be nothing if God didn't exist. Um, but we don't not know that. Right. <laughs> so that, that's, that's another problem with uh, presuppositionalism. And then another problem, of course, is that 
if if God, and in particular the Christian God, is a necessary precondition for rationality and logic, then God's probability is one. It's a, it's a logical certitude in the same way that the laws of logic are necessary. And, and of course, it's, it's absurd, I think, to say that God is a necessary precondition for logic and reason, because there's no possible world in which the laws of logic wouldn't hold. There's no alternative to the laws of logic. <laughs> and what would the world look like in which the laws of logic didn't hold true? Um, so that's, that's also a problem. But the, um, uh, so what was, what was the last point I was going to make? Oh yeah, so if, if, God, if God is a logical certitude, um, which the laws of logic, of course, are, because they exist in every possible world, and then God has to exist um, with a probability of one, in which case there's no, perp there's no point in talking about evidence, right? Because um, the very nature of evidence is that it changes the probabilistic landscape, it changes the probability of proposition being true. If you already have a probability of one, there's no amount of evidence that can change that. There's no amount of evidence that can ever change the statement that two plus two equals four. I'm sorry, it's, it's just it's a logical certitude. Um, so that's also a problem. So when you hear some more progressive, if you will, presuppositionalists say that, well, they're presuppositionalists, but they also like to use evidence. No, actually, these aren't compatible logically, I would argue. So <laughs> these are just a few of the problems I have with, with that presuppositionalism. Oh yeah, I hear that all the time in my uh, in various apologetics groups I'm a part of, and as someone who teaches apologetics, uh, I hear that all the time. Well, like, well, like I like to combine them, man. I like to use precept, and <laughs> like sometimes I like think evidentialism. Like, no, dude, no, it's either like, <laughs> they're two totally different epistemological approaches, and completely. Um, I respect classical apologetics. I do. Uh, that's usually my methodology. If I'm given a presentation, I'll do a full classical approach. You know, arguments for God, then arguments for Christianity. Um, but evidentialism should be the what everyone just goes by. What does the evidence point to? And if it's true, evidence should easily crop up for it. Like, and if it's not true, there shouldn't be evidence for it. Uh, it's just um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, what if you presuppose you can use both? I just want to know by what standard, Brian. That's what I want to know. <laughs> by what standard? All right. How do you know that's true? I don't. How do you know I'm that's true? I'm a skeptic. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Can you even, can you, can you account for logic in your worldview? <laughs> you know, that's funny. Logic and, and rationality is kind of interesting because some of my discussions with presuppositionalists has come around to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, where they make the claim that essentially the the ways of the world that we're supposed to be avoiding are actually logic and reason and i just like i don't even see how you get that from the text but how did you even come to that conclusion besides did you reason that that was the case and therefore we are stuck in doing what you just said is worldly and evil so i don't know what to do now <laughs> <laughs> just, just reminds me of that Calvinist debate with uh, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett and Dr. Flowers, where he's like, I do not affirm free will. And I'm like, well, then what are you doing at a debate, bro, trying to change people's minds? Like, I don't. <laughs> this just means. This is just means. <laughs> just, so, that's the thing is that you know it's always faulty when you have a, a premise that's so easily undermined. Just that's. I think uh, uh, Norman Geiser called that like almost you could just use a roadrunner tactic on that one where it just it's self-defeating. It yeah. collapses in on itself. Um, so anyway, yeah, I definitely not, um, I'm not a presuppositionalist. I find a lot of problems with presuppositionalism. It makes me concerned that there are large Christian influencers, um, who promulgate this still. Uh, and I understand that presuppositionalists are trying to come from a good place, but it's not helpful. And also with the other thing, uh, I actually saw a guy, a few people online even say this, well, 
the reason why I'm a presuppositionalist is I'm just not as smart as everyone else. I'm like, so you choose like purposely a, a crummier methodology. How about you just study a little bit or at least point people to some sort of resource? I don't, I don't understand. I, 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 champ I, I champion fallacious arguments because I'm not as smart as everyone else. <laughs> that will convince them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely going to convince them. So it's just, I, I right. it blew my and, mind. And, uh, uh, Good. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. A, a, common, a common talking point of presuppositionalists is that there are there's no neutral ground, that no no one is entirely objective, and everyone has a confirmation bias, and so therefore we should just start with Christianity. I'm like, well, if if everyone has a confirmation bias, the solution is, is not to exacerbate confirmation bias. We'll say, well, we, just, we, may, we may as well just give in and, and uh, begin with our conclusion. Um, this, Cut to the chase. No, I, I think that we need to take measures to mitigate against our confirmation bias, not exacerbate it. Right, absolutely. Uh, and, that, and that also shows that you're trying to be charitable to the other position. Um, also shows the fact that you are trying to be as objective as possible. Um, and I mean, I think everyone has a bias to some degree or other, but you should at least be trying to shed your bias as much as possible. Um, now, a uh, couple of this. Now, just so you guys know, uh, in the chat, there were a few there are people asking questions and whatnot. If you have questions, we're going to get to Q&A here very shortly. So go ahead and type them in. Uh, start typing them in and do it like uh, put like question in capitals, capital or Q in capital, and I'll then start. your question. That way we can they pop out of the chat a little bit easier. Um, now, so now let's circle all the way back around real quick. So obviously you're an evidentialist and um, you find apologetics very compelling and you're even studying uh, further in the theological realms, which is, hey, that's my home. <laughs> I can't talk to half the stuff that uh, Dr. McClatchy does. But anyway, uh, finally that area I can. But my thing is, is how did you, now that you started to talk about doubts, what made you go, you know what? I see this as a need and I'm gonna start this. Because what's cool about it is I hear all the time and we even talked about it at our um, conference, if we can call it that. Um, was how do we get apologetics into the churches? Uh, and so we're like, oh, do we trade apologists? Do we do this? Do we do that? But one of the cool things we'll talk about, talk about doubts.com is it brings apologetics to you and you don't even need to have somebody on staff. We, we got the team. So what, are, what, what caused you to start that? Is there a, any particular experience you had that kind of kicked that up? Was it just something you've always wanted to do? Tell us a little bit about that and how you think talk about doubts can help people. So talk about doubts is essentially an outgrowth of what I've been doing since 2016 on my personal website. Uh, and basically since 2016, I've been doing one-on-one uh, -on -one private mentoring sessions with Christians who struggle with doubts about their faith. I've always had a form on my website that people could submit and I would get in touch with them to talk about their doubts in confidence. And uh, last year in December, 2021, I uh, had the idea to create a, a new website where it would uh, specialize in this particular arm of my ministry. And instead of doing it all by myself, I would bring in different scholars with different areas of expertise, philosophy, uh, biology, physics, uh, biblical archeology, span New Testament scholarship, Old Testament scholarship, biblical Hebrew. Um, we have um, psychologists on our team, philosophers. We have um, pastors on our team. And uh, basically, basically my heart behind this ministry is to give everyone the opportunity to at least hear out the best possible, the most robust case for Christianity before they make their decision on whether to walk away 
from Christianity. I, I have watched literally hundreds, if not thousands, of deconversion stories on YouTube. I've read books by deconverts. Uh, I've interacted with many deconverts on a personal level. And one thing that really um, uh, breaks my heart is Christians who walk away from the Christian faith without even a basic understanding of what the positive case for Christianity is, and what uh, and without a robust understanding of how Christians in the last 2,000 years have grappled with some of the concerns and doubts that they are grappling with. And so, yeah, that, that's essentially the heart behind my ministry, is to make sure that everyone has at least the opportunity to hear out the best possible case of Christianity. And then I also uh, developed a, um, an online Discord community for past inquirers to talk about doubts, because one thing that I found was a recurring theme was that people are lonely, feeling isolated, they have no one to talk to, uh, they, their pastor doesn't want to be involved in helping shepherd them through their doubts, their, their family often aren't very uh, encouraging and helpful in that regard either, and so people are looking for community. So I set up a, an online Discord community for our past inquirers as well. We have uh, weekly Zoom hangouts as well that alternates between an emotional support group that's actually run by one of our past inquirers, and, uh, and then every other week we uh, run an online course that I teach on the evidences for uh, Christianity. So that's a little bit about the background for talkaboutdoubts.com. I think that's awesome because when I first found out about it, um, it was actually through David Palman and it was through the McGroupies Facebook group. And I instantly felt compelled to it because I, I've been in pastoral leadership probably altogether from the beginning about almost 10 years. And I've studied like, and I studied basically only theology. I only had like a theological thought process and some basic biblical archaeology um, up to a certain point. Then I, when I started leading a youth group with these kids hearing these different things from school, a lot of questions came up and I was like, oh crap, that's, those are so good. Those, those are good questions, kids. Do you have an answer? <laughs> no clue. <laughs> <Not right now. laughs> um, so then I, I left uh, at church that one night and I was a little discouraged. I was like, huh. But instead of being like, well, I guess we just got to chalk up to faith and presuppose that it's true. <laughs> um, I was like, it became this thing where I look, I literally just remember I sat down on Google. How do I know Christianity is true? And uh, then I, that's how I found William Lane Craig. And I was like, huh, who's this guy? And then I, it was like this insatiable craving I had. And I just kept digging and digging. And my book, and now my book list is so high. I have books everywhere in my house. You know, it's just, it's been a constant thing where I decided to study more and more that became interested in certain things I didn't know about and just studied those areas more thoroughly. Um, and then I see more and more kids with these issues, just young kids or even people my age. Um, and a lot of them have no one to talk to uh, when they have doubts. They their pastor is usually pretty good at marital counseling or these other areas, but he has no idea how to respond to these. And um, talk to my friend who's now my pastor. I now attend the church. I'm an elder there. And that was one of the things that I was like, we need to start an apologetics group in this church. And we did. And now we're seeing like there's this huge resurgence of young people in it because people need to know how to ask questions. They need to know that they can ask questions and that it's okay sometimes to say, I don't know, but let's find out together. Uh, so I think that talk about doubts is a powerful ministry and I want more people to know about it, period. I mean, that's more, that's such a resource for pastors to have. Like, hey man, you don't have to do a PhD thesis on the historicity of the gospels. We have people, you know? Um, you should know your stuff, but we have people. 
Yeah, when you showed me the, his website, well, I was just like, wow, I was just blown away. You scroll down, there's just faces upon faces with degrees and, and, and interests and obviously a lot of intellectual clout behind what they believe. And it's like, that's awesome. I, I can't think of any other research that I, I've known that would, would offer that. And some of our kind of, I think, most popular videos we've done have been responding to just essentially what were Christian celebrities that were like, I'm not convinced anymore. I don't think this is true. And they're giving, they're giving reasons for why they don't believe, which are some of those basic questions that, that anyone who's, who's put a little bit of effort into apologetics is like, oh, that's an easy question to answer. I don't know why this has been answered for 2000 years. What are you talking about? Right. Well, and that's where, I, I mean, by the way, that's not even the full team. Like, I, I'm sure that even uh, Jonathan can't keep up with it all. Like, I know I know Braxton is part of the team and all, oh, cool. and all that. Like, there's it's cool when I got into the spreadsheet and I saw the people. I was like, oh, my gosh, so-and-so and so-and-so's in here. Um, I didn't see them yet because I'm sure it's just, I mean, that's got to be impossible to keep up with. <laughs> um, but it's a powerful ministry. It's only started in December. And how many uh, inquiries you say you average about one a day? And we just started, yeah. what, in yeah, we're December? Yeah, we actually have had, since we started in December, we've had about two a day on average. Uh, I, I calculated uh, recently. Um, we've had approximately 250 inquiries since we began. So, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, we now have four past inquirers who are part of our team, which is really encouraging as well. Oh. Uh, we, have, we, have a, we have a YouTube channel, talk about doubts, um, YouTube channel where you can see a few uh, video testimonials of few of our past inquirers uh, we're hoping to get some more of those as well um so yeah check check that out. you can also see a back catalog of a few of our the, the past four of our um, online teaching sessions that i do for past inquirers uh, i haven't included the q a to protect the privacy of our community but you can see the lecture portion of those uh, courses uh, covering evidences for the reliability of the gospels and acts and uh yeah so check those out Absolutely. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel. It is very good. He just started it. It's kind of, it's up. It's, and one of the best things for any channel to have for YouTube to start picking up the algorithm is people going to subscribe to it. So go to talk about doubts, uh, on YouTube, you'll find him. Um, go check it out. And let's try to get him after this episode. Uh, let, all right, let's do, let's try to get, where are you at right now on subs? I think I'm like a hundred subs. All right. hundred, 150. 200 being the stretch goal. Let's do that. Um, and then make sure also you watch the content because it doesn't do them much good to subscribe and then not watch. Then just tells YouTube that you don't care about them. Um, so you just hit a button. So just letting you all know how to help, how to help out. So um, anyway, with that being said, uh, we have some questions in the chat. We have one guy in particular, Nicodemus, uh, is that, or is it Nidemos? Nidemos? <laughs> I don't, I'm scared. <laughs> um, so he's asked quite a few questions in here. Also, bro, yes, dragon's milk is delicious. And if I'm ever in Ohio, uh, hit us up. So um, I'm in Michigan though. So come see me, okay? Uh, <laughs> save me a trip. All right. So we have uh, multiple questions in here. Um, and so let's go ahead and get started. Um, question, doubting Genesis 1 and 2, how do divine words become physical objects? Um to answer, we don't know, we can't know, is equal to the non-theist saying, I don't know, first cause? Yeah, so I, I do draw a distinction between questions and objections. I, I think that's a legitimate distinction. Uh, questions aren't necessarily 
objections. Questions can express objections, of course, but for a question to become an objection, you need an additional premise, either that we do know the answer and until some sort of internal inconsistency or is at odds with empirical evidence, or we don't know the answer and if Christianity were true, we should expect to know the answer. And, and short of that additional premise, it remains a question. Of course, everyone has unanswered questions. And, and I don't think that we have a, an understanding of how divine words can translate into, into physical objects. We don't understand the modus operandi of God's creation. Uh, we understand because God has disclosed to us that he spoke the world into existence, how that works in effect. We, we just don't know, nor do we need to know. Now, in terms of the atheist's response to points such as uh, the, the first cause argument, the universe seems to have had a beginning and so forth, I, I would argue that this is different, that uh, the fact the universe had a beginning is positive evidence for theism. I, I personally don't think that the first cause argument is itself a conclusive reason to think that God exists. I think, think it's sufficient on its own, but it does tend to raise the probability of theism relative to what it would have been otherwise. Prior to the Big Bang cosmology, which was um, which uh, uh, was put forward and developed in the 20th century, uh, the uh, prior to that, the steady-state model uh, was the mainstream view in cosmology, which maintained that the universe is essentially static and eternal, and uh, that sits far more comfortably with an atheistic or naturalistic paradigm than the fact the universe had a beginning. In fact, if the universe had turned out to be eternal in the past, that would have been appropriately taken by atheists to be evidence that tends to be disconfirmatory of theism. And so it necessarily follows then the fact the universe did in fact have a beginning is evidence that tends to confirm a theistic hypothesis. It's not necessary, by the way, for the theists to argue that each of the arguments taken in taken individually is sufficient to conclude that theism is true or that Christianity in particular is true. This is a common misconception among both theists and atheists, and I think unfortunately when we present arguments in syllogistic form, like Willem and Craig tends to do, I think it can give rise to this sort of misunderstanding. But even if each of the arguments individually is insufficient to conclude theism, the arguments taken in aggregate could be in principle sufficient and then argue that even if the arguments individually are non-sufficient, certainly cumulatively the arguments are sufficient when considered holistically rather than in isolation. So hopefully that uh, helps to clarify that particular question. Right. I would just want to quickly add clarification with this question as well. Um, nowhere in the nowhere in the text does it say that like the phys the words become physical objects, more like he commands that something happens right. uh, would be the biggest thing there. Um, so and how that exactly works, we wouldn't know. Um, uh, like you said, that's kind of on God's realm there. Uh, now, the other thing I want to mention is that there are different interpretations with Genesis 1, especially. Uh, now, someone takes the idea that there's pre-existing matter, which can be kind of alluded to in the Hebrew, depending of which. It could be simply that God's making a statement that he's going to do something and does it and shapes it. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations, especially when you get into like even Judaic sources. Um, the general idea, though, is that the word of God, uh, his words are life. And that's why the Jews, even to this day, teach that the Torah gives life um, because it gives one purpose and life and morality, blah, blah, blah. So just just throwing some other theological concepts out there. There's a lot. There's a very broad way you can look at that. So I'm not sure if that's a um, like I said, it's an interesting question. We'll definitely one to ponder. But yeah, um, I yeah. Also, uh, Jordan Ferrier question. Yes, Dwight. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just thought. <laughs> All right. So also Nidimos or Nidimos. Uh, the plurality of Jewish interpretation with Messianic belief contemporary to Jesus seems to undermine a uniqueness of Christ. What would you say 
uh, to the development of messianic legend from Philo, etc. Um, so it's not entirely clear what he has in mind here. The plurality of Jewish interpretations of messianic belief. Uh, does he mean uh, that there were different understandings of messianic expectation from the Hebrew Bible? That, that's kind of what I was ex thinking, that because there's different views of what the Messiah was going to do. And even throughout different, uh, like the Bar Kokhba revolt and whatnot, there was different people who were claimed to be Messiah right. even during different times. I'm guessing that's what he's getting at, but I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would just argue exegetically from the text of the Hebrew Bible that Jesus is the best and indeed the only candidate for the fulfillment of those messianic texts. Uh, I have a whole suite of arguments that I could deduce uh, for showing, for example, that Isaiah 53 cannot be about the nation of Israel and that it really has to be about the, the, messia the Messiah. And we could unpack those arguments in some detail if desired, but... Uh, the fact that there was differences of interpretation, I, I don't think, undermines the objective testimony of the Hebrew Bible any more than uh, modern uh, Unitarian understandings of the deity of Christ don't undermine the clarity uh, with which the New Testament discloses Christ's deity. Right, right. Um, and that's, uh, and yeah, that would be kind of my point too. I'm like, well, which one just fits the fits the bill the most, you know, compare the evidence back to that. Um, so uh, Jordan Ferrier, uh, by the way, he has a channel called um, Not a Tame Sheep, which is a reference to Narnia, Not a Tame Lion. Um, so you should go check that out. I think he has two or three videos up on that now. Um, just started it. Uh, but he has his question is listed alphabetically epistemology, metaphysics, ontology. Which one would y'all put? Uh, which order? Which order would y'all put those three? Sorry, the camera's right in the way of my screen, so it's hard for me to read it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know how to answer this question. Um, in terms of order, in terms of what? You mean importance? Um, I'm guessing. I think it, I think he's meaning importance. I mean, these are, are just different. I mean, metaphysics, I guess, is a broader category. Um, by the way, I, I, the, do you know why uh, metaphysics is called metaphysics? So, in, so Aristotle discusses metaphysics in the chapter following his discussion of physics, and meta in Greek means after, so literally after physics. Oh. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like a dad joke, but from back in the day. That's fantastic. It's, uh, what are you going to call us? I don't know, after physics. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. That's that. That's a good question. I would almost, oh, man, I'm going to regret this. I'm going to take a stab based oh, on go. based on just this. I would almost say ontology because you have to understand the very nature of all things before you can even make right before you can make an epistemological. I don't know. I know, but then you have epistemology. You can have epistemological knowledge without fully understanding ontology. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Dang, that's a good question, Jordan. Let us know your answer down below. Uh, I think epistemology would be important, though, because it's a study of knowledge. So how do you even come to know ontology or metaphysics? So maybe epistemology should go first. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud. I'm going to get myself in trouble. You just Some... have to presuppose one. Ticket. Yeah. I, by what standard, Jordan? <laughs> by what standard? All right. Um, so he asks again, Christian plurality seems to undermine the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Caption Christianity is almost Catholic. Does he not have the Holy Spirit? <laughs> um, I, so he's arguing that, and this is a point that sometimes comes up, that diversity of Christian opinion means that, um, or undermines uh, the 
uh, credibility of the Bible, why can't God have been clearer on, on things that Christians disagree over? And for one thing, there are certain topics which I think the Bible is particularly clear on, such as the deity of Christ, for example, that, that people, I, I would say Christians disagree with it, but people uh, who claim the Christian label will disagree with, uh, with the deity of Christ, but that doesn't make it any less clear. Now, there are certain topics, of course, about which Christians can legitimately disagree with each other. And I think that God delights in deep study of scripture. And so there are certain topics which scripture is less clear on. Uh, eschatology would be a good example of that. And uh, I, I think that it's healthy that Christians disagree and can, uh, you know, iron sharpens iron and they come together and uh, cordially discuss these topics while exercising charity and so forth. Um, now, in terms of Roman Catholicism, I, I do think that there are some very problematic doctrines uh, in Roman Catholicism, and uh, I, I don't want to pass judgment on whether any particular individual who claims the Catholic label is, is saved or not. I, I think that there are some pro problematic doctrines though within Roman Catholicism in terms of their soteriology. Um, so that, that's all I'll say on that. Do you guys have anything to add to that? I mean, yeah. Uh, First off, I would never rob Catholicism of its Christian label. I think plenty of Catholics are here, know Christ and are saved. Like I said, I take issue with plenty of the doctrines. Um, papal infallibility being one of them, since <laughs> maybe it's just because I'm a rebel, though. Like, I'm over here like, don't ever tell me what to do. Don't tread on me, <laughs> sir. Um, uh, but the other thing is, is uh, I'm, I, this is kind of a controversial belief that I have, but I am not convinced uh, that Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit um, – like guides every single person to a truth claim. I, I don't believe that that's really taught in particular. A comforter will come, or you understand that the that the Holy Spirit like works on our behalf in communication with God and fellowship there. But I just don't, never really read any part in there that's like, oh no no, if you are a Christian long enough, the Holy Spirit will for sure leads you to truth. And therefore there, there will be no disagreement amongst Christians. I don't see that in the text. And I think sometimes the, if we can use the word Christianese gets a little out of control when everyone always says the Holy Spirit did this, the Holy Spirit did this. When sometimes the person literally just had a revelation because they studied something and they're like, oh, the Holy Spirit. I'm like, well, maybe that God helped guide you to that truth, but I don't know if we could always Right. Chalk everything up to the spirit. I, I think that gets a little dicey. I, I agree with you. And I, I, in the Paraclete text in John 14, John 15, John 16, concerning the Comforter or the Holy Spirit, the Helper, uh, I mean, he's Jesus is addressing specifically the disciples. He will lead you, namely the disciples, into all truth. He will he will remind you of what I have taught and so forth. Um, and so uh, the Holy Spirit, I think, brings things to their remembrance because they're the ones that are going to record. Um, uh, the, the, the life of Jesus and his, his sayings and deeds and so forth. In fact, there are points in, in Revelation uh, Revelation 2, uh, sorry, I mean, I'm sorry, I meant John 2, um, where it says that after Jesus was raised from the dead, then the disciples remembered the words that Jesus had spoken the, and they believed the scriptures concerning the resurrection um, and so forth. There are other texts that say the same thing um, as well. And so it was, it's, it's part of um, what the Holy Spirit was to bring to the remembrance of things that Jesus had taught so they could impart those uh, in their records and in the Gospels. Right, agreed. And then also I think the plurality of Christian belief is actually one of our strengths. Uh, there's always been disagreement in theological worlds, but that's okay. That's how you come to truth as you wrestle with things. And that's what we're kind of told to do. Like I said, certain things are more obvious in scripture than others. I have friends of mine that are Unitarian and we vehemently disagree on the deity of Christ. We've definitely had some conversations. <laughs> there's some of my friends, but they're wrong. 
Hello, Brad and Seamus. I love you. I've gotten a lot of trouble for being friends with you. So anyway, um, all right. Uh, question. Testimonies are bad ways to convert. I agree. Would you agree to join Heaven's, Heaven's Gate. Gate because their lives changed before they died? Uh, no. No. Next. <laughs> no. Uh -huh. Moving forward. Very good. I'm glad we addressed that. Very deep thought going on to that question. All right. Seeing the gospel writers get quotes of the Old Testament wrong seems to show that they were copying Greek, not Hebrew translations, and arriving at false conclusions, interpretations. True or false? Uh, does he have a particular example in mind that he wants to look at? It doesn't look like... Yeah, how do you defend Scroll down. Maybe you can oh, give okay. us a particular example and then we'll look at it. Yeah, we'll circle back, give us an example. Yeah, yeah. If you give us an example, we'll we'll respond to that a little bit. Um, how do you defend 1 Samuel 15, where God commands absolute geno genocide through the spirit? Yeah, so um, biblical, the, the conquest narratives are um, one of the more difficult challenges, uh, I think. Uh, there are a number of things that one can say. Uh, in regards to um, the the uh, Canaanite conquest, for example, um, in the Pentateuch, uh, we find that, uh, first of all, um, God waits 430 years uh, for the uh, the Canaanites to repent before he um, sends the Hebrews in judgment against the Canaanites, because according to Genesis, uh, the sins of the Amalekites have not yet reached its limit, and so God tarries with them and exercises his long suffering. Um, and furthermore, in regards to the Canaanite conquest in um, in um, Exodus, sorry, in, in um, Exodus 23 and Exodus 33, we learn that God sends hornets and angels ahead of the Hebrews to drive out the people from the land before the Hebrews even get there. So there's an evacuation operation underway, and so the by the time the Hebrews get there, the number of individuals occupying these cities had been significantly reduced. Um, now, there are some problematic texts, though, in particular, there's about three or four texts where the command is given to you um, kill all of the lives uh, in the fortress, including um, infants. Uh, and this is where it's problematic. With the adults, you can at least say, well, God in his foreknowledge knows what these individuals were up to. But when it comes, and of course we know that, uh, that God doesn't uh, send in the Hebrews to kill people lightly, it's rather as, as God's judgment for abominable sins. In the case of the Canaanites, it was uh, sacrificing children to their god Molech. Um, but when it comes to, and, and of course also God um, exercises judgment on the Hebrews when they sin as well through other nations such as Assyria and Babylon and so forth. But when it comes to the, the children or the infants uh, that are spoken of in these texts, that's where I think you have a more difficult challenge. Uh, scripture says elsewhere that uh, God hates hands that shed innocent blood, for example. And so how do we reconcile that with the command to these Hebrew soldiers to go and you know, run a, an infant through with a sword or hack a, an infant's head off or, or something like that? Well, there's, there's basically three options that one can take. One is to go, go the, the Paul, Paul Copan direction and say that these tags don't really mean what they, what they appear to mean. And 
he argues that the expression to kill all men, women, and child, and so forth, is some idiomatic expression, which means just to kill all life in the fortress. And he argues that cities like Jericho and I were military fortresses. Uh, that um, and that the women and children were inhabiting the surrounding countryside. And I, I'm not persuaded by that. Uh, he he does cite a reference in support of that, but the reference doesn't say what he says it says. Um, rather, it just floated that as a possibility. Paul Copan made a stronger claim in his book uh, where he basically said that it turns out that this is the case when really it's, it's speculation. We, we don't have sufficient reason to, to conclude that's the case. And I, I do think that he may, really makes the argument that the expression kill man, woman, and child is a, a, some sort of idiomatic expression that means just to kill everyone. Um, so, I, I, and furthermore, even if we suppose that Paul Coban's right, and I think he does make a good argument that that uh, that the ancient texts that we find in, in our Bibles use ancient uh, warfare rhetoric, speaking about um, uh, total annihilation when uh, they were perhaps uh, they're perhaps exaggerating or using hyperbole somewhat. And I think there's there's some plausibility to that. Some of the people groups that are said to have been destroyed show up later in the narrative, for example, as Paul Coban shows. However. I do think that that really resolves the problem because it's not so much the quantity of individuals, rather it's the quality of individuals. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about um, 300 infants or three infants, it's still the fact that there are infants that raises the moral problem. So the Paul Copan solution I don't think really helps. There's two remaining solutions that are available. One is to go the Peter J. Williams route, which is to say, that uh, it's not always wrong to kill innocent people. And so he gives the analogy of 9-11. Uh, it's kind of a parallel to the trolley problem. Uh, so he points out that, uh, okay, so in 9-11, uh, there were pilots in uh, F-16s that were scrambled to intercept United 93, which was headed towards Washington, D.C., presumably to hit the Capitol building or the White House. And, of course, they never met their target, but let's suppose that they did. Um, so you have two individuals, you've got the terrorist and you've got the F-16 pilot, both of whom are intent upon flying their airplane to collections of innocent people and killing them along with themselves. Now, if the F-16 pilot had been successful, he would have been hailed as a hero, but of course the terrorist is, uh, is, uh, is a moral abomination. So um, there's, a, there's a morally relevant difference between those two killings, namely that uh, the, the killing of these uh, innocent people in the, in the plane is for a greater good, namely saving more individuals. Uh, and of course, there would be a moral vulnerability, supposing that the F-16 pilot had been successful, namely that the relatives of the deceased might say, well, you don't know what was going on in that plane. Perhaps they had taken command of that plane, taken control of it, overpowered the terrorists. And that may be so. But God, of course, if we factor in that God is omniscient, then God knows all contingencies. and He knows um, everything exhaustively. He knows what the consequences are of, of different counterfactuals, taking out these infants versus not taking them out. So we can trust God that he intends to bring about the greater good. And uh, we can assume that these infants were uh, admitted uh, straight into, into, into God's presence as a result of the, those uh, killings. So that's the second option that um, Peter G. Williams advocates. Um, that, uh, and of course, one would also want to draw a distinction between killing and murder, right? Murder is killing without uh, killing innocent people without due authorization, and so the, the contrast, uh, um, 
that would be murder. So the, the contrast is killing, which is with um, due authorization. Now, um, the third option that one can take is the one that Tim and Lydia McGrew take, which is to argue that the case from natural law is so, is so strong that it's always wrong to kill innocent people. And the case simultaneously for Christianity being true, it's sufficiently strong that that itself justifies assuming that there may be uh, errors in those particular texts and that they might be overstating what God's divine decree actually was. Um, so these are basically the three options that one has, as I understand it. Do you guys have anything to add or to hear from yeah, so um, also I do know, uh, at least in Jewish tradition, it's pretty well known uh, amongst the uh, amongst Jews today, like through that different other sources like Mishnah, Midrash, things like that, um, that uh, the in warfare passages, uh, they it wasn't that always the fact that, all right, so yeah, kill without any mercy whatsoever. People were still allowed to actually convert. Like a lot of times, uh, they, and at least in rabbinic tradition, would mention that a lot of times women and children would actually want to convert to become be part of Israel because that's where they actually had rights. Where in many places they didn't, they were just prostituted and things like that. So um, even when you so even when you get to some Judaic sources, they also kind of acknowledge the fact that yes, this is this is tough, but also there's ways that people could avoid it. Um, and that that was actually always on offer in Israel, which is why we call them proselytes. And of course, we know that on the outside of the camp where these other people would, would reside. So the whole point was if someone fully identified as like, let's say an Amalekite, like, no, no, we are Amalekites or we are Canaanites. We definitely like to burn our children. Then it's like, yeah, okay, well, <laughs> sorry, buddy. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely think there's, um, th there are different options available. And I do think there is some relevance to understanding ancient Near Eastern culture and hyperbolic speech. I also think that there is uh, good to know about the idea of, hey, yeah, it's there are ways that innocents can die that can actually be for a greater good. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that there is, is also one, if someone could say that they overstated their case, that makes me a little nervous as far as, uh, I'll, I'll just be honest, but maybe that's my old school fundingness coming out. Uh, <laughs> makes me a little nervous when uh, we started saying, ah, well, I mean, it's just overstating its case. I'm like, well, okay, well then what, what else is overstating its case? So the, I don't know, that makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable. Uh, you have thoughts on that last part there or no? Yeah. Um, so. I mean, I, I wouldn't come to that conclusion lightly. It's, it's because the argument from natural law is so strong that it's always wrong to kill innocent people. Mm -hmm. and, and also the case of Christianity is so strong that yes, it is somewhat ad hoc, but there is a form of ad hocness that can be justified if you have sufficient positive evidence that can justify uh, invocation of an ad hoc nuclear hypothesis to explain uh, data that's somewhat anomalous. Uh, so that would be the, the approach here. I, I do, I, I'm not an inerrantist, uh, so I, I, I don't, I'm not absolutely wedded to the position that scripture is without errors. In fact, there are a number of cases where I'm convinced that there is a minor good faith mistake, and I do draw a distinction between a deliberate distortion of fact and a minor good faith error. And I do think that all hypothesized errors are epistemically equivalent. And if you have substantially reliable scriptures, uh, which I do think is a high stakes issue. The inerrancy for me is not high stakes, but there is a high stakes issue in the vicinity, namely the strong reliability of scripture. And the scripture is strongly reliable, but there are some minor good faith mistakes uh, scattered throughout the text, then that is not a major problem for me. It doesn't really undermine my overall confidence in the robust reliability of the gospel's next uh, or, or, the, or the biblical narrative as a whole. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't remember exactly. It's been a while. I should have brushed up on this beforehand. 
have to pull out my Hamash and check out some things and ask my buddy Seamus. Uh, and I'll have him try to put something in the comments below on what that is because he's he's like an expert in that area. But I just I, I'll have to appeal to him on that um, as far as what the Judaic view is on that because I do remember that there was something to do with how they handled women and children. Um, so anyway, um, real quick. Uh, Jamie uh, Am Ammons, Ammons? Ammons? Um, says, is there a minimum age for referrals? Can I refer high school kids in my church who have doubts? So one of the fields on our submission form uh, asks if you're over 18. And uh, if someone is under 18, then uh, the only requirement from our end is that we have two of our team members on the call just for accountability purposes. Uh, so. Uh, that that's that's the the only difference so we we insist that there are there's more than one person on the call with someone who is who identifies as a minor perfect so if you someone is a minor then they are able to still talk about their doubts it's just that they'll have well, there'll be two people on the call which is great because it means double trouble you get you get the benefits of two people instead of one yeah you just so, gotta put down that you're minor so you get two of them at once <laughs> yeah if you're like i'm really doubty also like a 50 year old man's on the other end like ah gotcha no i we, can pick both we, we did we, we do sometimes have uh, two people on calls anyway especially if an inquiry spans multiple disciplines uh so yeah Right. Um, so, all right. And then, by the way, um, he did, even though he's been asking us a bunch of questions, he says that even he is subbed to talk about doubts and he is an atheist. So I thought that is uh, interesting. So um, and helpful. And I'm just trying to see, make sure there's no other questions in here. Um, Brian, do you see any? Not yet. Keep scrolling. Uh, Oh, there's a few, but just ones I don't want to keep taking uh, the same. same. Uh, I have a question. Oh. This, this might uh, hurt your future debate propositions, but what do you think is the most compelling uh, argument that an atheist has? Uh, the problem of evil, I think, is the strongest argument uh, against theism. Uh, in terms of uh, Christianity in particular, I think it's uh, the question that was just brought up, namely the uh, the. Uh, command to uh, kill infants uh, in the cities of Canaan. I would definitely agree that the genocidal passages are probably the right. biggest textual issue there. Um, yeah, so very good. Well, um, Dr. McClatchy, we really appreciate you, uh, you coming on. Is there anything you wanted to quickly um, add before we close up shop? Uh, no, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, th I think we've covered um, most of what we wanted to cover. And yeah, just uh, um, if you're struggling with doubts and want someone to talk to, then feel free to get in touch at talkaboutdoubts.com. Someone will be in contact and we look forward to speaking with you guys. Absolutely. So go check out talkaboutdoubts.com. Go talk about talk about doubt. Go check out talk about doubts on YouTube. Saying that fast is a little bit of a challenge yeah, for were, me there. You're getting tongue twisted. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm like ha, 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 ha. words. Words are hard. Um, so yeah, go check that out. And guys, uh, please uh, go check out the content. Uh, they he is actually. Um, very well spoken. He's very uh, knowledgeable on a lot of topics. And I think you'll find this ministry a blessing. And of course, share it around at your churches. We want to be of most help to the kingdom of God as possible, which means um, dealing with people's actual doubts. So with that being said, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the church split. Check out talkaboutdoubts.com. And of course, as always, like and subscribe, but take care and God bless.